Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host Ben Davison and it is Sunday, July 2nd in the year 2023. I hope wherever you are around Australia and indeed around the world that you're having a wonderful, wonderful day. It is of course the start of NAIDOC week in Australia. Now NAIDOC week is a week where we celebrate our Indigenous peoples, uh, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander comrades who have for so long fought against uh, institutionalised racism, uh, fought against discrimination uh, and fought against uh, the, the very fabric of having their land and culture stolen and destroyed out from under them in a colonial occupation. Now, the reason why I call it that is because we are about to embark upon one of the great steps towards reconciliation in the history of our great commonwealth. Anyone who listens regularly to this show all the week on Wednesday will know I'm a big fan of Australia. Being a big fan of something means that you recognise that it has faults and failings, that you recognise it can be improved, that what exists can be built upon to be even better in the future. One of the really great things about this NAIDOC week is that the YES campaign, that is the campaign that is saying yes to the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in our constitution, the campaign that is saying yes to giving our First Nations people a constitutionally enshrined voice to advise government and parliament on policies that relate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that that campaign has had a huge, huge day today at the start of NAIDOC week. That campaign recognises that our Commonwealth will be stronger, will be better, will be fairer for recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in our constitution, that we will be a nation that has a 60,000-year history as opposed to one whose constitution limits us to a mere two centuries that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will have a structured, formal say in advising government and parliament in the policies that impact them. Dan Andrews has talked a lot in the last week about the importance of listening. And there is no question that the voice and these constitutional reforms are what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have asked us, the rest of us, the 96% of us who live on this continent who are not Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander to do. They've asked us to listen. They have extended the hand of friendship and reconciliation to say that this is the next step, that to improve child mortality, to improve educational attainment, to improve and decrease the incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to improve the life expectancy, the economic outcomes, the employment outcomes, the housing outcomes that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders can expect, that this is the next step. To have a voice that constitutionally must be heard, it doesn't mean that the voice will direct government. No advisory body does. But it does recognise that as our First Nations people, This advisory body should have a special place in the structure of our Commonwealth. 
unlike advisory bodies that are set up by ministers or by governments of the day. The voice represents the multitude, the consensus of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It won't represent everyone. And we've seen Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people say they don't want the voice or don't want the referendum for various reasons. I went through this myself with the postal vote on marriage equality. People might remember I was steadfastly opposed to there being a postal vote. I didn't necessarily want people voting on whether or not my mums and my family were legitimate. In this case, there is a clear and overwhelming majority. 80% plus of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This statement from the heart, the Uluru statement from the heart, clearly calls for this to happen. And I have to say, the reason why this episode is late coming out on Sunday, normally I like to get it out before lunchtime. This is now coming out in the afternoon. You might be listening to it on Monday or Tuesday, whenever you're listening to it. Today, I went to the launch of the S campaign in Ballarat, my hometown, a place that I love, a place that is exceptionally white, it has to be said. For a long time, the Federal Electorate of Ballarat has been the electorate with the highest proportion of Catholics anywhere in the country. I also want to point out it's a community that overwhelmingly voted yes to marriage equality. And if today's turnout at Ballarat Trades Hall, the world's second longest continuous operating trades hall in the world, is any indication, it's a community that will overwhelmingly vote yes to recognising our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution and enshrining that they have a voice to Parliament in that constitution as well. Of course, the union movement has turned out big numbers of people right around the country. So has the Yes campaign, who are doing a huge amount of work, not just to encourage people to vote yes, but to combat some of the misinformation and disinformation that exists out there. I'd urge you to check out yes23.com.au uh, I think it might also be yes23.org.au, but also to check out your union's website. Most unions I'm aware of have something about the voice and why it matters to working people, particularly our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander comrades who face discrimination, institutional barriers, and many other hurdles to workplace participation. Of course, the union movement has long been an advocate for the equality of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I'm proud to right now be wearing my Unions for Yes hoodie. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, to join your union if you're not already a member. From there, the Australian Unions website can show you how you can get involved in campaigns wherever you are around the country. There have been massive turnouts today in a rain-soaked Melbourne, in sunshiny Sydney, in Adelaide, in Perth, in Canberra, in regional centres like Ballarat, in Wollongong, in Newcastle, in Hobart, which of course is a capital city, but right around the country. I believe, I believe there have even been events in Queensland because people will decide what our constitution says. Not politicians in Canberra, 
not the talking heads on Sky, but the citizens of this nation decide on the constitution of our Commonwealth. And it is past time that our Commonwealth recognises that for 60,000 years, there have been people living on this continent. For 60,000 years, the continent that we now call Australia has been home to the oldest continuous civilization on Earth, and that we are part of that great nation, that we were not suddenly brought into being when Captain Cook's boots landed on Sydney Cove or the first fleet and the convicts were dragged ashore. This is a continent of continuous population, of culture. And I personally, as someone whose family came here in the 1970s, who was born here as a first-generation Australian, am so looking forward to being able to proudly say that I am a citizen of one of the oldest countries on planet Earth, as opposed to feeling an element of disquiet, of discomfort, a shadow that sits just off to the side about how our Commonwealth ignores, dispossesses and discriminates against the very first people, very first Australians. Really looking forward to voting yes. I really hope you are too. Don't forget to talk to your friends, your colleagues, your co-workers about why you're voting yes. There are so many good reasons to vote yes. There is so much to be gained and absolutely nothing to be lost by voting yes. Of course, we know if the no vote gets up, it will set in motion some really horrendous, and we're already seeing some really horrendous racism, some really horrendous attacks against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and just generally attacks against the concepts of reconciliation. Even just the acknowledgement that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are our First Nations people. A no vote will empower that kind of reactionary, destructive, hateful vitriol. So don't buy into it. Don't get into arguments on Twitter. If there are people who are going to vote no, who are staunchly going to vote no, and they're prepared to make what you believe are racist comments and racist arguments for it, those are not the people we're trying to convince. We have to win a majority of Australians and a majority of Australian states. That means talking to people who maybe aren't already talking about it. That means talking to people who, when they hear from you about why you think it's important, might just be spurred to think about why it's important for them. So a shout out to all of my comrades who are out there today, who will be out there over the course of the next three months campaigning for, yes, huge, huge congratulations to everyone who has made the events happen right around the country. I know it's been a lot of work by a lot of people and credit to you all. We are on our way. The yes vote is coming. Now, turning to some other news. This was covered briefly on Insiders. Look, I watched a bit of Insiders today. Uh, they had the Ukrainian ambassador on. Uh, some interesting comments from him. I'm not going to go into Insiders too much today. There's other news for us to cover. 
the NDIS turns 10. Now, Linda Reynolds, who was, of course, the former minister for the NDIS, uh, although I don't think they called it that under Morrison, I think they called it Minister for Disability Services, but Linda Reynolds was the minister with responsibility for the NDIS. Having been minister, you would think that Linda Reynolds would have used that time for constructive reform and improvement. Uh, Linda Reynolds didn't do that. She spent most of her time not doing anything by the sounds of things. But now that she's in opposition, she's managed to find her voice on NDIS matters uh, and has suggested that there will need to be uh, means testing uh, and co-payments. This is, of course, standard Tory practice. Let's be really clear about what this is. Linda Reynolds does not care about the NDIS. Linda Reynolds was minister and did nothing. Linda Reynolds has not fleshed out a policy position, has not engaged with stakeholders, has not, is not even responsible for the NDIS anymore. Michael Sucker, by the way, is the shadow minister for the NDIS in the Dutton Shadow Cabinet, in case you were wondering. Michael Sucker, of course, has also made no public statements about the NDIS that I can find. Because, of course, Michael Sucker doesn't care either. Michael Sucker is now in a very marginal Liberal-held seat in Victoria. He is himself a bit of an endangered species and likely to be looking for protection at the next election. But Linda Reynolds, who is not the Shadow Minister, has come out with a whole bunch of policy suggestions. The reason why I say this is typical Tory nonsense is because this is what they do. Having spent a decade in government failing to stamp out sham contracting arrangements, having failed to prevent differential price gouging, which sees participants on the NDS, NDIS charged more than non-participants in the NDIS for the same services, for the same equipment. Now, now the Tories think something must be done. Of course, Bill Shorten has already said that he intends to stamp out the corrupt practices of the bad apple and bad egg providers. He intends to stamp out this differential pricing arrangements. He knows that there has to be changes in the way the NDIS operates and functions. Anyone can see that. There's no question that a program which is designed to be an insurance scheme, let's be really clear, it's in the title, National Disability Insurance Scheme, is not there to ensure that global private equity firms can achieve substantial profit returns. And I say that because I know for a fact that global private equity firms are investing in NDIS-focused companies right here in Australia. Now, I'm not saying there's no place for some form of private enterprise in the way services are provided in Australia. We know there are quote-unquote thin markets, but we also know that there are clearly quote-unquote fat markets because there are providers charging more money for the same thing to an NDIS participant than they would to someone who's not a participant. That is price gouging. It is ripping off the taxpayer. We know that there are sham providers, often digital, often using a platform, who are effectively putting people into sham contracting arrangements, taking a clip of the ticket and passing off all responsibility onto the individual worker and the participant. 
These are not legitimate arrangements. They may well be lawful, but they certainly don't pass the sniff test. They are not what Australians would expect from a taxpayer-funded program, a multi-billion dollar taxpayer-funded program. But Linda Reynolds isn't talking about any of those things. What she's talking about is a way to wedge Labor. So now, of course, if Labor rules out any form of co-payment, Liberals can claim that they've had a win. They can also claim that Labor is being economically irresponsible if there are budget problems down the line. If Labor refuses to rule it out, then they can try and mobilise NDIS advocates against Labor for an idea that was actually conjured up by Linda Reynolds and possibly some of her staff, possibly over beers on Friday night. Who knows? Certainly wasn't developed in any kind of rigorous policy development process. And I say that as someone who has a degree in policy development. There is no issue where the non-Labor parties will not seek to wedge Labor. We saw the Greens do it on housing. You know, Van and I have talked a lot about housing over the last few weeks because it has been such a big issue. And I want to give a special shout out to the many, many people who have contacted us on our social media channels about their housing situation. I'm working my way through responding to you all. You will all get a message. But my general message is this. Unfortunately, we at The Week on Wednesday are not housing providers. We're not in a position to guarantee you a position in social housing or affordable housing or public housing. The Greens have blocked a $10 billion housing affordability future fund, which was designed to create more housing. They've done that despite Labor meeting many of their original demands for changes or improvements to the policy because it was never about the policy. And I'm sorry to those people who have contacted us, and I'm sure who are contacting many people who don't have anywhere safe to be, who are worried about the future of their housing, who are on waiting lists and have been for many years. The Greens simply do not care. They have prioritised the politics of wedging Labor over the policy of constructing a housing program that will give you some form of certainty for the future. I'm not saying that the Housing Affordability Fund would have delivered you a house today or even tomorrow. These programs take time to develop, they take time to implement, and of course, housing itself takes time to build. But every day of delay at this point is attributable not just to Dutton and his coalition, but also to the Greens. If either one of those groups decided to support Labor's policy, then that fund would be up and running right now. And programs in states and territories all across the nation would be going from concepts on a whiteboard to plans in an application process. And one step closer to more homes for you. Don't lose hope, though. Labor has put in place a $9.5 billion 
financing mechanism for more social and affordable housing. We hope that the Greens will see sense come October. And of course, Labor has had a number of big policy wins that have kicked in now that it is July. Today being the second, yesterday, 1st of July, new financial year. That's just a couple that I want to mention because I think it's important for us to recognise that in just the space of a year, Labor is making change happen. We had a decade of Morrisonism, first as the Minister for Social Services, where he conducted his very own special social services experiments. Then as Treasurer, where he, of course, cut the pension with the help of the Greens. Then as Prime Minister, and we all know the horrors that that entailed. Well, on the 1st of July, Labor and the Labor movement, each and every one of these things that I'm about to mention are issues that unions and workers standing together campaigned for, demanded, and drove the Labor Party to develop good, proper policy in consultation with stakeholders, in consultation with stakeholders who would be affected for the benefit of all. 5.75% pay increase for award workers. That's nearly 2 million people. Cheaper childcare for over a million families. An extra $2 billion for new social housing, but not the $10 billion fund that the Greens have blocked. A 15% pay rise for aged care workers, some of our lowest paid workers doing some of the most important work with our elders. Better and more paid parental leave so that families can determine how they support themselves when a newborn arrives. The establishment of the National Anti-Corruption Commission and an increase to superannuation to 11%. These are all great policy outcomes that will put money in the pockets of people who most need it at a time when inflation is so very, very high and very, very difficult for us to tackle. The reason why I bring up inflation is that, of course, inflation numbers were down slightly this week, down to five, uh, down in the fives from the sixes. But, of course, there's still speculation that the Reserve Bank will put up rates. At the same time, we've had confirmation that the Commonwealth budget surplus is going to be $19 billion instead of $4 billion. Now, some people, including on insiders, I should say, have been saying this is a bad thing or a difficult thing or being critical of the government for this. Now, again, regular listeners to this show will know that we take a neo-Keynesian approach here at The Week on Wednesday. That means when unemployment is low, as it is now, we are effectively at record low levels of unemployment, not since the days of Curtin and Chifley have we had such low levels of unemployment. When unemployment is low, you should be running budget surpluses. It's a basic tenant. So that when unemployment is high, you can afford more services and support for people in need. It's not to say there aren't people in need now. And some of the programs I just read out are about supporting and reducing the cost of living for those who need it most. But in order to tackle inflation, governments can do a couple of things. They can rely on the high priests of the Reserve Bank and their orthodox cultists in the economic community who seem to think that the only solution is to increase mortgage rates more and more and more 
until people start to default or until businesses decide that all they can do is shut down various means of production and throw people into the unemployment scrap heap. Or governments can take a proactive approach. Now, what Labor has done is taken a proactive approach. While the Liberals squeal and scream about the budget surplus being based on record tax takes, what they're not saying is that record tax takes is exactly what we should be having. When inflation is high, high income earners, corporations, and resource companies who are profiting from a war on the other side of the world should be being taxed, and they should be being taxed more than ever before. That reduces the amount of money they have to spend in the economy and encourages them to invest in productive capacity. Why? Because there are tax deductions for doing so. There are a lot of reasons why a budget surplus at this point is the right economic call. Part of it is you withdraw money from the economy. Imagine if Jim Chalmers announced the new $19 billion cash giveaway. That would absolutely fuel inflation. Instead, what he's basically saying is, we're going to take that $19 billion and we're going to use it to pay off government debt. That puts downward pressure on inflation, which in turn puts downward pressure on prices for households and small businesses, which in turn allows those households and small businesses to have more money in their pocket. Now, these are not one-for-one equations, obviously, but what they do demonstrate is a government that understands the complexity and intersectionality of economic management. Everyone is obsessed with the idea that the only solution to high interest rates to high inflation is higher interest rates. And the only solution to high interest rates is pain. There's no question that inflation can cause pain. The question is how it's dealt with. If I stub my toe, one solution is to cut off my toe. It's a pretty drastic solution, but I probably won't have any pain in that toe anymore. What the Reserve Bank has been doing is effectively cutting off our toes one by one in an attempt to stop the pain in our foot. What a budget surplus allows the Albanese government to do is to target cost of living relief to those who most need it. I remind people once again that the last time we had deflation in this country was when childcare was free during the pandemic. It's a huge cost, huge cost for families to bear. So targeted relief plus a budget surplus means less money just swirling around in the economy. And of course, being rigorous in the way government spends money, getting rid of the rorts, getting rid of the corruption, getting rid of the Morrisonisms that so defined the last decade, the colour-coded spreadsheets, the sporting clubs that got money that they didn't need and didn't deserve. And of course, redirecting that in the long term to productive capacity. Schools in this country are still underfunded. Underfunded public schools in Australia in the year 2023. Labor has talked about getting Australian public schools on a pathway to being fully funded. 
The budget surplus makes that more likely. Having a stronger long-term budget position should allow Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese and the other members of the Labor cabinet to proudly stand up and tell us when that pathway will start and when public schools can expect can expect to get to the minimum recommended level of funding based on the needs of the children that they teach. Again, policy developed with stakeholders based on the needs of those stakeholders. Are you sensing a theme in this episode? Because there's one just hidden under the surface. Of course, while this budget surplus is good, is strong, gives some capacity to build for, for the future, improve productivity through education, skills training, infrastructure, incentivize capital investments from those corporations who are unhappy about having to pay so much tax. We shouldn't forget that part of that Morrison legacy was the idea that corruption in government was acceptable. And this week we also saw the fallout, the final reports around Gladys Berejiklian, who, and I quote, engaged in serious corrupt conduct in 2016 and 2017. You might remember all the way back during the lockdowns, we talked about Gladys Berejiklian and her relationship with the former member for Wagga Wagga, Daryl Maguire. As it turns out, that undisclosed relationship between the Premier and a member of the caucus resulted, at least in part, in the funding of the Australian Clay Target Association and the Riverina Conservatorium of Music. That that was serious and corrupt conduct. That the failure to disclose that relationship was a breach of public trust. And that Gladys Berejiklian knew or should have reasonably suspected that Darren Maguire was engaged in serious and corrupt behaviour, which in itself, in the New South Wales definitions, is serious and corrupt conduct. So let's be really clear here. In New South Wales, if you're if you suspect, if you're aware, if you believe someone has engaged in misconduct, corruption, you have a responsibility to report that. If you are a public office holder, you must report that to ICAC. What Gladys Berejiklian did was not report Daryl Maguire. Some of the transcripts, some of the material that has come out is a little sad. There's no question about that. Gladys Berejiklian's relationship with Daryl Maguire is probably best described as sad. Daryl Maguire refers to himself as always being, quote-unquote, the boss. Even when Glad, as he calls her, is premier, he is still, quote-unquote, the boss. And it is a little sad. But we shouldn't allow that to cloud the fact 
that Gladys Berejiklian, who is no longer in a relationship with Darren Maguire, it must be pointed out, hid that relationship from the members of her cabinet, from the public, and then awarded millions of dollars of public money to projects to help Daryl Maguire try and retain his seat. Fundamentally, that is corrupt behaviour. Fundamentally, it is wrong. And while the boss's pamphlet may have proudly once put Gladys Berejiklian on the cover, calling her the woman who quote-unquote saved Australia, time has shown quite the opposite to be true. Gladys Berejiklian is not a hero, is not a feminist icon. Gladys Berejiklian was a sad, somewhat lonely public figure who engaged in corrupt behaviour, seemingly for no personal monetary gain, but certainly for personal gain. And we shouldn't underestimate that. While we might look at those transcripts and feel a degree of empathy or sympathy for the former Premier of New South Wales, we should also remind ourselves that she was the Premier of New South Wales, one of the most powerful people in this country, at a time when her state was amongst the most powerful as well. And she chose to put her personal interests in Daryl Maguire, not financial interests, but personal interests nonetheless, in Daryl Maguire, ahead of the interests of the people of New South Wales. Don't get me wrong. I know it's hard for public figures to have relationships. I know it's hard for them to find love. I know it's hard for them to manage family life and public life. But that doesn't excuse hiding the relationship. It doesn't excuse facilitating Daryl Maguire's funding requests without disclosing the relationship. It doesn't excuse turning a blind eye when she suspected Daryl Maguire was involved in corrupt behaviour. It's simply not okay. And for all those who said, well, she was conned by a bad man or she had bad taste in men, or making some other excuse for Gladys Berejiklian, the former Premier of New South Wales and leader of the Liberal Party, I would just say this. If we're willing to say that because someone is lonely or because someone comes across as a bit downtrodden, when they're in a position of power and they exercise that power for their own benefit and their own gain, will we feel the same way if they exercise that power for the benefit or gain of others, of family members? What if the gain had been for her brothers or sisters or cousins? What if the gain had been for her neighbour? It was for her lover, Daryl Maguire. Where do we draw the line? Well, in New South Wales, the legislation draws very clear lines and ICAC draws very clear lines. And Gladys Berejiklian engaged in serious, corrupt conduct. And it's unacceptable 
And for all the Liberals who still want to defend her in New South Wales, I remind you that Labor has now established the National Anti-Corruption Commission and I look forward to it doing its work to root out and draw very clear lines about what is acceptable and what is not. Because I suspect that some of its investigations will find that the motivations of perpetrators at a Commonwealth level are not merely loneliness or broken hearts or a desire for love, but something much more sinister, much more greedy and much more financial. Whatever the motivation, corruption has no place in our democracy or in our politics and should always, always be stamped out. Don't forget to tune in to me and Van on Wednesday for the week on Wednesday. Once again, I'd urge you to get involved in the Yes campaign wherever you are around the country. Let's keep an eye on what's happening with the NDIS. There is a need for reform. Of course there's a need for reform. Linda Reynolds is not genuine about her desire to help. She is genuine about trying to stop Labor winning government again and actually doesn't care about the lives they break along the way. Mind you of any other political party, maybe with a slight greenish tinge. Now, until Wednesday, remember to be kind to yourself and to each other.